This program has been edited from its original recording for length and clarity. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I truly hope you're safe, happy, and healthy. I'm Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a series of virtual conversations about issues of critical importance to America and to the world. Of all of our Carnegie Connects sessions, perhaps with the exception of COVID, I suspect none are more consequential than the future of American politics and security uh, than today's discussion on the roots and rise of right-wing extremism in America, encompassing also the ideologies of white supremacy and white nationalism. There is, to be sure, domestic extremism on the left, but as the events of January 6th clearly demonstrate, the magnitude of the problem is to be found on the right side of the extremist spectrum. A recent CSIS study reported that two-thirds of the attacks in 2020 were undertaken by white supremacists and like-minded extremists. Last August, a self-professed Antifa supporter killed a Trump supporter in Portland, Oregon. According to the FBI, that was the first killing in 20 years by what the Bureau classifies as a, quote, anarchist, violent extremist. Indeed, it may well be that the Trump administration's focus on the Antifa threat during the critical summer of 2020 diverted precious law enforcement resources from the more ominous threat that was building from the right. In any event, this is a serious problem. Last month, the White House ordered a review of that threat of domestic violent extremism by the Director of National Intelligence. So you now have a Department of Homeland Security, a new attorney general, who oversaw the investigation of the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, Merrick Garland, and Justice Department, now focused on handling, probably, and Mary, you'll have to tell us this is accurate, one of the largest investigations in its history. As of last week, I think 300 had either been arrested or charged with the feds investigating as many as 500 cases. So clearly, I think it's time for a new definition of homeland security. We spent billions, if not trillions, on Afghanistan and Iraq to secure the homeland from the transnational jihadi threat. But when the threat actually came, well, by and large, it came from a virus that has now claimed more American lives than World War I, II, and Vietnam combined. But now we're faced with the threat of violent domestic extremism. Analyzing the roots and rise of these groups I think is like peeling back an onion, particularly for someone as uninitiated as I am in this subject. There are really so many layers, a lot of questions, and fortunately, as usual, I don't have to answer any of them. But we have three extraordinary panelists who can't. Mark Ginsburg is the president uh, of, of a great organization, Coalition for a Safer Web. Mark was also the former U.S. ambassador to Morocco, and a White House Middle East advisor. Rachel Kleinfeld is known to all of you. She's a senior fellow at Carnegie's Democracy Conflict and Governance Program, a great colleague of mine, where she focuses on issues of rule of law, security and governance in post-conflict countries, fragile states, and straits in, in transition. Finally, I'm pleased to welcome Mary McCord, who's the executive director and legal director at the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Freedom, ICAP, and a visiting professor of law at Georgetown. 
she previously served as the acting assistant attorney general for the national for national security at the U.S. Department of Justice and principal deputy assistant attorney general for the <clears throat> national security division. You know the format. So, Rachel, can I uh, cede the virtual floor to you? Um, sure, Mike. So, uh, sorry, sure, Aaron. I'm looking at uh, Mark Ginsburg. So, um, you know, the I think the way to think about the threats that we're facing now is not to get too hung up on the nomenclature that America faced a series of um, groups on the far right until about 10 or 15 years ago. You could think of three main areas of violence arranged into about three fairly separable groups, although there was overlap. You had the white supremacists, the KKK that had three big surges after the Civil War in the 20s, in the 50s after Brown versus Board. Uh, then you had a lot more organizationally fluid white supremacist groups. The farm closures in the 80s brought a lot of Midwesterners into the white supremacist movement. They blamed Jewish bankers for the farm closures and their problems. You had a Christian movement within the white supremacy uh, grouping, Christian identity and Aryan nation appealing to um, those groups. You had the skinheads in the 80s um, who appealed to youth and uh, you had prison groups that got very strong. And the white supremacists, most of their attacks, about 80% of their attacks were on minorities. Then you had the militias, the militias, the anti-government extremists, the pro-Second Amendment groups. That really uh, started after the Vietnam War. A lot of blue-collar folks coming home saying the government sent us to this war, wouldn't let us win, uh, came home pretty angry. Um, and then um, in uh, the 1990s, uh, gaining a lot of momentum and a lot of steam. I'm sure Mary can talk more about this uh, from her time in the DOJ. Um, but the militias really came up with some organizing strategies, cell strategies, uh, leaderless cell strategies, and so on. Um, those the DOJ really snuffed out to a great extent after the Oklahoma City bombing really pushed back. And then they had this resurgence after 2008 under Obama. And you see this back and forth with these groups where um, they tend to surge when uh, when there's a moment of progress racially or there's a moment of uh, sort of social change and progress toward a more progressive nation. So no surprise, 2008, Obama becomes president. You suddenly get the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, a whole new series of militias. Uh, with the militias, about 80 percent of the attacks were on federal government, on law enforcement, on politicians, but they weren't so partisan. And I think that's really important to realize. These were anti-government. They were far right, but they weren't as partisan as they are now. And then and then finally, I'll say uh, there was state violence. And I don't think in talking about far right violence, we can avoid the talk of the state violence from slave patrols in the South as the beginnings of Southern policing, uh, posses in the South that worked in the same way, the willingness of law enforcement to turn a blind eye or work with Klan violence in Mississippi and Louisiana in the 50s and 60s. The FBI had to do a huge amount of work to um, fight Klan violence in the 60s and 70s in those states. Um, the immense racial animosity in parts of the North and cities in the North that also led law enforcement to have very unequal uh, policing. And that's played a real role because the Oath Keepers militia after 2008, the three percenters and others have actively recruited from former law enforcement, active law enforcement to some extent in military because they're drawing on certain cultures. Um, and so these groups uh, used to be much more separable. I know I only have five minutes, so I'll close here and we'll come back to it. But I think the big takeaway is that what's happening now is that um, 
in in the more modern, you know, last 10 years or so, these groups are continuing. You still have these separate groups, but first of all, they're blending much more. And second of all, they're much more organizing ideas than separate groups. These are things that people can buy into on the web in the same way that you're an Orioles fan and you buy the clothing and you believe in the ideas and you might meet up with other Orioles fans and go to games. You can belong um, without really being a part of a group in quite the same way. And so the lines are much more fluid and the organizing ideas have become much more fluid. And recruitment has thus become a much uh, more fluid thing as well. Thanks, Rachel. That, that was a fascinating overview. I'm not sure I'll ever think of the Baltimore Orioles the same way anymore. Um, Mary McCord, let me turn it over to you. Sure. And that's a, a great segue, actually, because, you know, one of the things that I think that um, for those who hadn't been focused on this for the last few years, one of the things I think that January 6th really illustrated is that this tent of far-right extremism has gotten very, very big, right? So what we saw on January 6th was a coming together, a coalition, if you will, of, you know, conspiracy theorists, including QAnon and others who had been um, propagating all kinds of conspiracy theories for the last several years, but most recently propagating with the help of the former president and his surrogates, the notion that the election had been stolen, that President Trump had won in a landslide and it was through massive election and voter fraud that uh, he, he was not going to be the president. So that was that, was that core fundamental idea uh, grievance, if you will, that was able to bring groups together. So you had those conspiracy theorists in the same place as the unlawful private militias, some of uh, which Rachel was just talking about, along with other just out and out, you know, white supremacist, violent extremists who believe in um, using violence to create essentially a white ethno state. Um, and then among with them, you also had thousands of people who I think probably came to Washington actually legitimately believing that there had been election fraud and seeking to actually, you know, um, use their First Amendment rights and and speak out, probably without any intent to violently overrun the Capitol. But the danger when you have this many groups together in one place like that, egged on by somebody with the veneer of credibility like the president, that's just... um, you know, a recipe for the disaster that we saw. And it just took a few people to start the violence. And so many people followed. The crowd followed, the crowd became a mob, people engaged in violence who probably had no intent to engage in violence. And that is what almost, it was almost like flash radicalization. I mean, some people were already radicalized, but I hate to coin a new term because it's an awful term, but like other people, I think, did things that were radicalized violence in that moment. So part of the question is, what do we do about it? Um, I get, I've been getting tons of calls since January 6th to talk about domestic terrorism and the gaps in our federal statutes about domestic terrorism. And that's a discussion to have. But I will say there are ample laws that apply to what happened at the Capitol. It was insurrection. It was seditious conspiracy. It was all kinds of other conspiracies. And we're seeing that in the more than 300 cases that have been charged. So there's plenty of tools to use, but we have to think more broadly than January 6th into how do you combat from a law enforcement and from a whole of government and whole of society perspective, this growth of domestic extremism to the point of radicalization to violence in the U.S. And that's going to take not only federal and state 
governmental authorities, but intergovernmental sharing, uh, you know, around the, the world, because this problem is not unique to the United States, doesn't stop at our boundaries. And we've seen white nationalist extremism growing across, you know, Europe, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, etc. Um, it's going to take, you know, concerted actions by the military. And, and, you know, our new Secretary of Defense has already made commitments to this. And also our police forces, which, of course, there is no centralized command for police in this country. It's very disparate around the whole country. But they have got to make concerted efforts to, you know, eradicate extremist elements from their ranks. And it's going to take the business sector, and I think I'm sure Mark will speak to this, technology platforms, but also the business sector writ large to be more um, vocal and more adamant about using their tools. And it's going to take political will, because I think we'd be lying to ourselves if we didn't say that one of the reasons that we've seen this explosive growth, for example, of private militias since 2008 is because no one's really countering them. And there are laws on the books, and I'd be happy to talk in much more detail about these later. I'm also trying to be cognizant of the time. Every, you know, they, private militias are not authorized in any state under federal or state law. They're not protected by the Second Amendment. Supreme Court's actually been clear about that as far back as 1886, upholding a state anti-militia law that exists to this date on the books of 29 states. The Supreme Court said it was without question states had to be able to prevent private paramilitary organizations. And the Supreme Court under Justice Scalia, one of our most conservative justices, reaffirmed that in 2008. So that's very clear. And all 50 states prohibit them either through their state constitutions, state criminal statutes, um, or, you know, there are other regimes that carefully govern uh, uh, military force and law enforcement. Yet we've seen very, very little enforcement. And you have to ask yourself why that is. And part of it, I think, is political will, because we're talking in many cases about local elected uh, prosecutors, local elected sheriffs and chiefs of police, in areas that are very anti-government and very supportive of private militias, um, talking about those are the people that would be responsible for actually enforcing law against the very communities that elect them. And that's a gap and that's a problem that, that mm. we need to address if we're going to actually have a fulsome, widespread um, uh, program for countering this type of violent extremism. Mary, that was fascinating. Mark, um, let me turn to you. Well, thank you. And it's great to be with everybody. Thank you, Aaron. So uh, in the few minutes that I have, I want to talk about the role that social media companies are playing and what essentially is militarizing these social movements. Uh, we we hearken back to the days of ISIS and Al-Qaeda when uh, they, in effect, perfected the use of social media to incite, recruit, and engage in live stream atrocities as a way of recruiting uh, followers. And what has happened is that these Western groups have seized upon and copycatted uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda operations with the help of certain governments. And so we have a situation right now in the United States and in Europe where social media platforms have been able to provide that very type of technological support that has enabled these groups to expand their reach, to incite and inspire attacks, as well as to provide uh, financial mechanisms by which they're able to raise funds. And these groups are also facilitated by the support of foreign actors 
namely Russia, which is, as well as Germany, where QAnon support is extensive. And so when you add the combination of uh, the Internet Research Agency in, in Russia, as well as hundreds of thousands of more radicalized QAnon supporters feeding back disinformation and incitement back to their uh, so-called colleagues in the United States, this has become a far more transnational problem. We cannot look at this strictly as if this was a homeland security issue. So much of this is occurring as a result of support, financial support, as well as government support coming from our, our enemies and adversaries uh, elsewhere. The other problem we face is that we tend to lop social media into what essentially is one uh, platform. But social media is really, we need to understand social media is really being part of a trifecta. You have uh, the major main, main tech organizations such as Facebook and YouTube and uh, Twitter. And then you have what I would call uh, mobile apps that are used also to facilitate and vector incitement, such as Telegram, Signal, and WhatsApp. And then you have these fringe bulletin boards, which are the real, uh, what essentially the ground zero for many of these uh, extremist operations, such as, such as GAB, 8KUN, 4QNN, areas that more or less begin tipping over into the area of what is known as the dark web. And then you have homegrown web-based extremist groups that operate off of their own web pages, such as the Adam Waffen Division, or Proud Boys, or Boogaloo Boys, or Stormfront. And QAnon. And so when we look at social media, we have to understand how each of these groups are operating off of these various platforms. Uh, is there any effective way to uh, moderate these platforms? Well, everybody goes back to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And the great challenge here is that you have so many people uh, who are in Congress having so many different views of what to do about Section 230. For people out there they need who want to understand, Section 230, in effect, grants content immunity to social media platforms so that they're not liable for the content that is uploaded on that. Uh, social media platforms spend hundreds of millions of dollars over the last few years trying to protect that immunity and prevent Congress from changing it from whether it be Trump or President Biden, who have called for the abrogation of Section 230, there's absolutely no consensus within the Congress over what to do about Section 230. And mainstream social media platforms play a whack-a-mole game with Congress. They come up to testify about how much progress they're making, why Section 230 is necessary to them. Congress goes back, considers it, and then they have another hearing three months later, and nothing happens after that. And so we have a vicious cycle where Congress itself is trying to introduce new laws, uh, to come up with new ideas involving Section 230, but no one has been able to develop any consensus. So what can be done? Uh, we've proposed several ideas. One is to create a social media standards board similar to the Financial Accounting Services Board that would harmonize and create an independent regulatory body to require these groups to basically adopt a harmonized system as to what constitutes extremist incitement and be held accountable uh, for violating those, those, um, uh, those standards. We also have proposed, because of what happened on January 6th, and it's proven because there's so many great watchdog groups out there, uh, a new social media early warning system center 
whereby social media groups like ours that were already warning about the events leading up to January 6th as, as far back as December 30th, and yet no one was really paying attention to our warnings. There's so many good groups out there that are able to identify extremist content, but we lack from the federal government on down to the local government, a fusion center that enables those groups to be able to provide early warning system to our local authorities. So I'll stop there. There's so much more to talk about. Thank you very much, Aaron, for my colleagues for letting me join you today. There is a lot more to talk about on social media, Mark. You know, I I suspect the founders who feared demagogues and the people's receptivity to them never anticipated. How could they have anticipated the amplifying effect that social media has? And it actually even gets to Mary's point that the vast majority of those who marched on the Capitol may well have been uh, interested in legitimate protest. But protesting what? A stolen election with millions of people actually believing, and to a large degree, not all, to a large degree, social media is clearly responsible for the, well, what Rand Rand Corporation called truth decay, although I think it's beyond truth decay now. It's a completely different version of, of reality. So, let me drill down and ask a few questions. You know, Rachel, you provided a terrific overview. Assuming that extremism on the right end, and at least of late uh, to a lesser degree on the left, has been part of the politics and political culture of America since the 19th century, how how is this resurgence? And I, I would like all of you to weigh in, if you could, and from 30,000 feet. How is this resurgence different? Is it more deadly? So are we going to get a tick to the talk in coming years to balance this out? Or are we now, have we reached a point for many different fact reasons that this ext- kind of extremism is here to stay? I think what we're seeing right now is two things. One is that what had been fringe movements have become very mainstream. Um, It's much more easy to buy into a part of them. It's much more easy to say that you're a part of some portion of them without saying you're a full-on white supremacist. You don't have to be uh, so far out of society. And I think the other thing is they have fused with a highly partisan culture. So remember before I had said you had a far right set of groups, but there was actually gatekeeping by the Republican Party to keep them out. So when David Duke tried to run on the Republican ticket, the mainstream Republicans said, oh, my God, no, we're going to run against this guy. When Pat Buchanan tried to run on the Republican ticket, he was pushed out onto his own uh, party. Um, and you saw that again and again when the George Wallace had to run on a third party. And so you got real gatekeeping that um, pushed these people out. What you're seeing now is not only was Trump uh, sending these coded dog whistle signals, and you had dog whistles from uh, Republican leaders, let me be clear about some of this uh, language before, but the actual groups, you know, there'd be dog whistling about racially coded language and so on, but they, they'd keep the worst of the worst of the groups out. Now what you're seeing is this dog whistling plus bringing the groups in. And at the state level, you're seeing much more than dog whistling. I mean, a week after the attack on the Capitol, you saw the head of the GOP in Texas posing with members of militia in full gear and putting it on Twitter. 
Um, you've seen members in um, the Oregon State House opening the door to let um, in December before the attack on the on the Capitol in D.C., to let similar types of people into his capital. So just really deep levels of, um, of mainstreaming and so on. That is pretty new. And I think what, what that is pointing to is just how toxic our political culture is right now, how incredibly polarized our political culture has become. And the mainstreaming also has to do with this 50 year history of dog whistling. So we've built ourselves up into a culture in which there's two choices right now. We have a choice of a country that um, of people who uh, really want to say America is a country that um, wants to welcome immigrants, that wants to have more progressive views toward women and so on and so forth. And we have um, people who, uh, for instance, there was a woman, uh, white suburban mother, anti-abortion activist, anti uh uh, evangelical missionary who was with the Take America Back Texas movement, who says, we believe our country is being taken from us, our constitutional rights, our Second Amendment rights, our First Amendment rights are threatened. We're not going to sit back and let it happen anymore. And she was part of this uh, militia movement in Texas. So you get this kind of very mainstream amalgamation of uh, anti-progressive uh, female, uh, anti-government, pro-Second Amendment, all these movements coming together. And what it allows is for groups that were once very much on the fringe to find a place closer to the mainstream. And one way they do that, by the way, is through jokes, through memes. And this is something that we know from psychological studies, that if you say something out and out racist to someone, mm -hmm. if you say something out and out sexist, most of us have a rational brain that for people who want to remain in good standing says, you just can't do that in the 21st century of America. But a joke can get straight through that rational brain and go, uh, go to a much deeper place and people pass on jokes. And it's one of the ways that social media is so pernicious is these jokes and images and memes, these kind of funny things that you wonder about, uh, Pepe the frog and, and these kind of weird social media things that you see online. These jokes that get perpetuated allow people to partake in a culture of very light white supremacy, light misogyny, the incel culture that's this male sort of anti-female culture that's becoming more and more violent. And it allows that joking culture to be written off even by people within it to say, am I part of this? Am I just joking? I don't even really know myself until they get pulled further and further in and it becomes more and more mainstreamed. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing is that movement, plus political leaders saying this is okay, and a very partisan um, situation in our country where if you've picked a side, you want to stay with your team. The absence of gatekeeping is, I think, really a very stunning point. You know, in 1925, and, and the respectability, quote unquote, when the Klan marched on Washington, you see the pictures Walk, walking down Constitution Avenue and Pennsylvania Avenue, I mean, some unhooded, but many in hoods and robes. There was a degree of secrecy and discretion. Now it's pride. It's identity. And apparently uh, the traditional gatekeepers can no longer uh, do what they need to do. Mary or Mark, uh, uh, a big picture takeaway on why, why this resurgence may be deadlier and different than in the past? absolutely right um, that they're trying to be mainstream and that one would can look out there and think this is looking much more mainstream when you have openly 
you know, members of Congress openly embracing conspiracy theories. But many of these organizations, and particularly some of the private militias, they, they are trying to make it look like something different, right? They will call themselves patriots, and they will say all that they are doing is defending and protecting constitutional rights. They will say we reject racism, we reject white supremacy, we don't allow anyone into our ranks who espouses those views. Now, you don't have to scratch very far below the surface to see the memes, the jokes, etc. that Rachel was talking about, but they're open you know, public statements often will be, no, we are about the Constitution. The problem is they have a very different, ahistoric, atextual, and against Supreme Court precedent view of what the Constitution says. But that's, I think, their effort to be mainstream by feeling like if we can bring ourselves within these types of labels, like patriotism and Constitution, then we're mainstream. And that is, they're assisted in that, and this goes to one of the questions in the chat, they're assisted in that by uh, cable news and media who will happily cloak the racism and the white supremacy and the anti-Semitism in constitutional rights. It reminds me of what Harry Truman said about Richard Nixon. He may have read the Constitution, but he never understood it. This is a, but this is a telling, fascinating point on the use of the very document that was conceived in an effort to maintain balance and moderation is now being used as a vehicle uh, to defend extremism. It's, well, fascinating, incredibly telling. The New York Times this morning had a story on the front page about the impact of January 6th on these groups. I don't know if any of you saw it, but I want to ask for whoever wants to answer. Maybe, Mary, we could start with you. Was January, is, in your view, it's too, maybe too early to tell, was January 6th their Lexington and Concord for many of these groups? Or did this, proce- did this start a process, particularly with the prosecutions? It's one thing to you know, to espouse these views is another thing to actually serve time. Are these prosecutions, is there any kind of naming and shaming? Uh, will these groups begin to re, you know, remorph, split up, fracture? Are they going to go to ground? Are they going to become even more dangerous? So I think we're having, if this is, this sounds like a very weird term to use, but we're a little bit in the honeymoon after January 6th, because I think that a lot of the groups are running scared as a result of the prosecutions. I have long said that many of these folks will talk a big game online, but none of them really want to go to prison. Um, And so the fact that people thought that they could come to Washington, D.C. from Ohio and Texas and all over the country, because the prosecutions are now, I think, in almost every single or people against people from almost every single state that they could just come and wreck havoc and uh, you know violently attack the Capitol and then walk away from it is pretty shocking. But that's the mental state they were in, and I think as these you know they were euphoric on January sixth, just like the uh, white nationalists were euphoric at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville yep. on the night of the rally. Euphoric, thinking, look what we did. We stepped off of the virtual space into the physical space. We showed our power. We showed our numbers. But then in the days following January 6th, just like in the days following Charlottesville's Unite the Right rally, as the universal reign of condemnation came down upon them and indictments started showing up, you're seeing them start 
finger pointing, start imploding, start, um, you know, deep. Now, some of it is also they've been deplatformed, but there's a lot of now blame shifting, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, one of the national organizations, the three percenters has now announced it is dissolving. Now, I think it's going to reemerge with a different name that has to do with being preppers, right? It's rebranding. But the fact that they think it's necessary to do that, I think is pretty telling. So I think we are in this time period right now where they are having to regroup and figure out what their next cause du jour is going to be. And they're in disagreement about that. Some want to stick with the stop the steal mantra and, you know, be all in for Trump 2024, et cetera. Others are, others will just fall back on what has always united at least the private militia groups and many of the extremists that align with them, which is guns, right? When all else fails, like earlier this year, we had anti-health measures for the pandemic. We're going to see some more of that. Then we had, you know, anti uh, racial justice demonstrators who are rioting and looting. Then we had anti-stop the steal. But when when they don't have any other coalescing issue, they will always fall back on the government's going to take away our guns and they'll use that to to continue. You know, Rachel, you've written a lot eloquently and persuasively on this whole issue of polarization and tribalization. What, what do you, and you actually suggested some ways to begin to address this problem. If on the top you have a leadership and a political culture that will, at a minimum, acquiesce and enable, and on the bottom, you have millions of Americans who, who are genuinely grieving as a consequence of so many, so many factors, which COVID-19 has only, you know, exposed the cleavages and the inequities in our society. Where do you begin to address the the root of, of these sorts of divisions? George Packer says we've now become two separate, literally two different countries. Neither can be conquered and neither is going anywhere. How do you even begin to deal with that? Yeah, I think um, I think it's a profound question, and I think you see the sorts of conspiracy theories and, and so on that we're seeing. You see them in low trust countries. I mean, a number of the kinds of countries that uh, the ambassador has served in, and you see them in um, countries with deep distrust between citizens and between citizens and government. And so um, the the kinds of problems we're seeing right now go straight to what Mary said. This uh, this fear of being replaced, this status anxiety, this loss of a sense of place in the world, and a sense of loss of control over one's life from globalization, from economic changes, not just poverty. People think of it as poverty. There, there's actually very, very little research suggesting that anything has to do with absolute poverty. It's about where you are in the hierarchy. And particularly if all the other boats are rising and you're not rising as fast, even if you're rising, um, feeling like, well, what's wrong with me? And how do you displace that onto the other? And if you look at the conspiracy theories, if you look at, say, QAnon, what are the threads pushing people into QAnon? It's the anti-vax movement from the left and the right, some of it pushed by Russia and so on, but some of it just pushed by anxiety about expertise and so on. It's moms worried about pedophiles. It's this heroic men, this idea that we can't be heroic anymore. How do we be um, protect our families? And and then the far right politics. So you have this sort of toxic cultural stew, and you say, where do you where do you start? I think um, the 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 place to really start has to be with leadership, not tamp, not not pushing it up. There's a lot of people who want to start start at the bottom, who want to start with one by one we heal our divides, right. and. Uh, I, I emotionally feel that 
but all the research says that is actually not very effective. Um, that if you need to make a societal level change in a country of far over 300 million people, you just can't do it one by one. You need to have people at the top, your leaders, and not just political leaders, your pastors, your, um, your, uh, celebrity spokesmen and so on saying, look, we have to come together. We have to start realizing that we're all coming together at the family dinner tables. We're coming together at Thanksgivings. We are neighbors. We need to find ways to come together. So you need that messaging at the top. Then you need to start healing the nation in very real ways. We can't be this unequal a nation and believe we're going to heal. Structurally, we actually need to bring people together more. We need to deal with some of these things that are having people feel such deep levels of economic anxiety and of status anxiety. That's not just saying uh, whites need to be pulled up again. It's saying, let's deal with the people that feel that our system is rigged against them. They really don't believe that the system is, um, is functioning for them and they see the elites winning all the time. And how do we address that problem in a very real way? Yeah, it's going to take time and it's generational. Uh, Mark, building on Rachel's point about political leadership, uh, the Coalition for a Safer Web, which is your organization, is suing both Google and Apple. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about that? And one other question, what is the problem? Well, I, sh- I think I know the answer, but what is the problem with Congress? Okay. And well- third, is it is it campaign contributions from big tech? Is it the same kind of polarization that affects legislation on almost every other issue? Lawsuits in Congress. Sure. Uh, the lawsuits that we brought were unprecedented against Google and Apple, largely because one of the major vectors of extremist incitement and operations in the United States is through the mobile app Telegram. Now, Telegram is a transnational mobile application, which is usually is used largely uh, for good purposes uh, to support democracy movements in Iran and Russia and Belarus. But it's also become the uh, weapon of choice, the social media weapon of choice for extremist operations. It's almost a one-stop supermarket that's enabled these organizations to uh, operate in and out of the United States, raise money, organize, recruit, etc. And the lawsuits we brought were against Apple and Google for enabling uh, Telegram to operate on their mobile platforms is the only way to exercise or to compel them to exercise their financial ability to leverage against Telegram to force content moderation. Now, Telegram could clean up if it's it's active, it's wanted to, but it's doing everything it can to transnationally avoid any any national regulatory uh, authority. Now, with respect to Congress, uh, Congress is going to have another five hearings in the next few weeks on the role of uh, privacy and the role of social media in extremism. So once again, you'll see uh, Zuckerberg and Pichai from Google and uh, whoever comes up from Twitter, maybe it's Mr. Orsi, to testify before Congress. And once again, Congress will go through their gyrations of wondering why these groups are not doing more. Look, the fact of the matter is, is that... <coughs> Until Congress decides to add more restrictions on the right of these organizations to operate with impunity, these organizations will not believe they have anything but a moral obligation to uh, to constrict extremist incitement on their platforms. They feel like they're doing a favor to us. 
by by engaging in content moderation. And all of those who have their hair on fire, oh, this is a violation of the First Amendment, uh, the ACLU goes crazy. The fact of the matter is, is that these social media platforms, as I said, spend millions of dollars lobbying members of Congress, uh, raising money for them in order to prevent regulation. Well, this is where the dilemma lies. What exactly is regulation supposed to accomplish? Uh, Section 230 was amended several times to prohibit child pornography and sex trafficking. Why can't it be amended to prohibit uh, the incitement of extremist operations on social media platforms? Why on YouTube, for example, Aaron, can I go on and download thousands of instructional videos on how to make a pipe bomb? Okay, what public interest is served by that? That very activity was used by the, by the student at, at Parkland High School to build his pipe bomb. Well, you're going to, YouTube, which by the way, hides behind the, the apron strings of its parent Google, has never really been held adequately accountable for why, for example, instructional terrorist incitement videos are permitted on its platform, let alone its anti-Semitic content on its platform. I'm using them as an example of what is so wrong with social media. You know, you could, you know, I'm just thinking about January 6th, the People's Temple. I mean, what if that didn't bring it home to representatives and senators in this Congress? What, whatever will, whatever will. Okay, we're nearing the end of the hour. I have a question here. It's, it's a hard one. It gets to the issue that Rich was uh, discussing. Ben uh, Olarsh. Olarsh asks uh, a question I'm interested in. Could civic education be a long-term solution to the problem of combating extremism? I mean, what role role do curricula and teachers play in all this? Or do they reflect to some degree the communities and the views of the parents? Any thoughts? Um, you know, I know there's a big push. It was in the front page of the Washington Post uh, today on civic education. And certainly our country could use more civic education. Just we could learn more about our history. We could know more about Reconstruction and so on. But as a cure for this, I'm pretty skeptical. I have to be yeah. be fair. First of all, um, there is a large portion of our country that really wants to believe that America is a Christian nation with a mission sent by God to spread our good to the world. They don't want to necessarily hear bad things about the country. There's an AEI survey and there's a lot of survey evidence um, from the evangelical community about that belief set being fairly deep set. So if you try to have a civics education that talks about things like the Reconstruction era issues of um, problems in our history, you're just going to fall into all the culture wars that we um, have been in for the last number of decades. And it might even expand some of the problems that we're facing right now. So I worry about what would the content be? Um, I think all of us had the experience of going through schooling in different places where, you know, in Massachusetts, you learn about the American Revolution every single year from kindergarten through the 12th grade. And uh, in Alaska, where I'm from, you learn about Alaska history. It's not particularly helpful from a what is democracy? And if what you learn about is I'm a bill on Capitol Hill, that, you know, maybe tells you more about how you get something done, but it doesn't necessarily give you trust in the system when people have such deep trust. So I I think that um, it's always good to know about our history. It's a complicated history, but 
I'm not sure that it's going to solve this problem. People have strong, what's called motivated cognition. They seek out information that confirms the beliefs they already have. And if you look at the people who rioted on January 6th, it's an older group of people. These are people pretty far from their schooling years. And so, you know, whether they remember what they learned in uh, middle school from 25, 30 years ago is, is dubious to me. Yeah. Excellent point. I want to thank the three of you. This has been one of the most depressing conversations I think we've had, given the challenges that we face, but it's also been one of the truly richest and your authority and expertise is really impressive. So Mary, thank you, Rachel and um, Ambassador Ginsburg. Thank you for listening to the Carnegie Connects podcast, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to the Carnegie Connects podcast on popular platforms such as iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash carnegieconnects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan is the executive producer. I'm Aaron David Miller. Until next time, think positive and test negative.